Thank you for this morning. Thank you for, for dads. Thank you for all that you do. And we, uh, we lift up this time that we've got and the, and the word that we're going to dive into. We pray that through this text that you'd speak to us, that you'd challenge our hearts and, and challenge, challenge who we are and how we see the world. May we walk out of here better because we encountered you today, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. When I was a kid, I would, I would visit out in Vegas in the summers. I would, I would come out here, and my family in Sin City would take me to church. Do with that what you will. And while I was here, we would, uh, when I was younger, we went to a place called Genesis. That was our, our church, and there was a children's ministry we would go to. And I don't remember a lot about the children's ministry when I was in it, but the one day that really stands out to me is the day we made paper airplanes. This was Sunday school, and I was already at a point where I didn't like the term school, because school, and to apply that to church just like bummed me out, but I got in there and they told me, it's like, today we're goofing off, and I loved it. They started handing out paper, and they're like, we're making paper airplanes. There might have been some kind of teaching, like something having to do with Jesus, and, and like wings of eagles, I don't know, didn't care, we were making paper airplanes, and it was awesome. So I got my paper, got real excited, and I folded it in half, put the corners in, wings down, boom, paper airplane. And I got I was like, yes, and I get up, and I throw my airplane. And it does pretty much that right there. That was, <laughs> it was not impressive by any stretch of the imagination. So my, I threw it out there, and whatever, it's a paper airplane. But then, then there are more paper airplanes flying. The other kids have got theirs going, and their paper airplanes are better than mine. Like, I did basic. Like, that's... That's deplorable kinds of basic. Like theirs were like, like folded in all kinds of fun ways and there were jets. They were fantastic. One dude, he made his. It was so, exa- so exact. It went like precisely into the eye of the kid across the room. It was wonderful. And uh, even the kid who took it in the eye is like, that was great. <laughs> so it was back before helicopter parents couldn't get away with it. It was, uh, it was good times. Um, and then after that, there's one of the other people, they made this one I'd never seen before. It's shaped like a manta ray, and I was a kid, so that was amazing because it's a manta ray, and those are awesome. And he, he, he throws that one out there, and it, it does like a little loop. Right? I know. <laughs> and I was just jazzed. Yeah, that's right. You can keep that one, Jesse. It's like, cool. <laughs> so that one's there, and there's jets, and then one of the leaders stands up. And I don't know if this was the person, like, in charge. I don't think so. I think it was just one of the older kids who didn't have to be back there because their mom made them. And they, they made the flying O. I had never seen this before. And since then, I had thought I had made it up, but I was wrong. They hold up the flying O. And all the kids stop. And we stare at it. And none of us has the courage to tell them, that's not a plane. I don't know what you expect to do with this thing, but it, it's, you're going to be embarrassed, basically. And he doesn't say anything, doesn't explain it. He just, he just kind of like lets it fly. Right? And all the kids, we just stop and stare in like slow motion and awe. And it sails across the room, and then it crashes into a door, and then we erupt in celebration because it was amazing. And we all run back to the tables, we get more paper, we make more planes, and we just keep going. It was awesome. And as I'm thinking about that story, as I'm reflecting on it, I, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I thought 
maybe I would react differently in that kind of situation as an adult. The experiences I've had and, and who I am now, put in that kind of situation, I might react differently. I, I couldn't quite get there, so I, I did an experiment on my kids. With, did an experiment with my kids. If you say, oh, you experimented on your kids, people get all uppity, and the authorities don't like it. Um, like, call you. So, so I got my kids, and I was like, hey, here's a piece of paper for each of you guys. What I want you to do, make the coolest, most amazing, fantastic paper airplane that you can imagine. Go. And they ran off. And for 10 minutes, I didn't hear anything from my kids. It was wonderful. If you want 10 minutes of silence, just do that. So they come back, and, and Sophia's got this thing. I gave her a piece of paper, and she just found two, and she made three airplanes, and they stacked on top of each other as this three-tiered jetliner. It was rainbows on one side and white on the other. I'm like, that's, that's impressive. And Connor comes to me, and he's my 11-year-old son, and he's like, he hands me his plane, and it's black. And it's got two little blue slits up there for the cockpit, and it's got missiles under the wings, and then there's a dorsal fin. He's like, I was inspired by a blackbird. I did not have the heart to tell him that blackbirds don't have dorsal fins. But <laughs> afterwards, I, I realized blackbirds should probably have dorsal fins. That's really cool. And so we lined them up, we get in the hallway, he's like, all right, let them fly. And they throw their airplanes. And Sophia just kind of breaks apart into three, like, scattered jets, and they don't really go anywhere. And Connor's just nose dives because the dorsal fin was not a good idea. <laughs> and so I, I, I pulled in me and said, all right, kids, how do you feel? Fine. They did that, like, like drawn-out voice the kids do, and they're like, why are you asking me this question? You feel, you feel fine? Yeah. Are you, are you happy with your airplane? Yeah. Are you upset that it crashed? No. All right, cool. All right, get out of here. Love you. Bye. And my kids leave. And I start processing some more in my, in my slow cooker and uh, start coming to the realization that, that as an adult, I don't respond the same way. I, I feel like that if I took something that I put time and energy and effort into, I worked hard on it, and I let that thing go, it better soar. It better not even think about crashing. If this thing comes falling out of the sky, I'm going to lose my Jesus. And I, I've made, I made a lot of paper airplanes in my life, and I, I would wager that you have too. And by paper airplanes, I mean you've, you've done a lot. You, you've put a lot of effort into things. You've cared about a lot of things. You've put yourself out there and been vulnerable. You've, you've worked on a lot of projects. You've met a lot of deadlines. You've put up with a lot of people. And nothing that we build, put our, our hearts into and, and, and work on, and nothing outlasts time. No, no paper airplane I've ever made has beat gravity. It, it is the state of things that all of our efforts will eventually fall prey to entropy. They will come tumbling out of the sky and it will crash and burn. At your job, you might hear, okay, that was good last week. What have you done for me this week? Yeah. <laughs> if at home you get the, well, what are you going to do for me thing from your kid, it's like, well, I'm going to remove you from the face of the earth that I brought you into. That's what I'm going to do for you. It only flows one way, kid. Um, all right. Our efforts, our attempts, the things that we put our, our time and energy into, 
They eventually will fall out of the sky, they'll peter out, they'll crash, and then we're left sitting atop the wreckage of a million paper airplanes. So how, can, how come I can't apply the logic I could as a kid, where I was in a room, I didn't even compare myself to the other kids, I just wanted to learn how to make a better airplane. Like This was amazing, an amazing experience. How come I couldn't apply that logic to now? How come I can't apply the logic when my, my kids throw a paper airplane they just built and put their hearts and souls into and designed, and it crashes, and they didn't care? It didn't bother them. They weren't upset and screaming. I wasn't upset and screaming. Nobody cared. It's a paper airplane. How come I can't apply that logic, that logic to my life? A lot of how we feel about ourselves flows out of our ideas from God. I'm, I'm brought to the quote that Pastor Richie has brought up a few times from A.W. Tozer that says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I, I have to assume that A.W. Tozer knows what he's talking about. He sounds like a smart guy. So, that being the case, our picture of God, our notion, our concept, our idea of who and what God is, is going to influence how we think about things when they come to a crashing halt. When things peter out, our notion of God is going to affect how we feel about failure in our own lives and in the lives of others. So I come up with this equation because I think in equations, I think, okay, so how I think about God influences how I feel when I fail and when others fail. So if I'm going to work this out. I know how I feel when I fail. I know how I feel when others fail me. But I'm really bad when I fail because nobody can beat me up like I can. So if I reverse engineer this a little bit and I go from this is how I feel when I fail, what does this tell me about what I think about God? I'm left with the question, well, where did I get my concept of God in the first place? And from there, it's a logical jump back to what somebody said to me. When we were first expecting a kid, I say we, it's mostly her. She was expecting a kid. I was, I was involved a little bit at the start. She finished. A, anyway. When we were first expecting a kid, other parents told me, a child's first impression of God is his or her parent or parents. My first impression of God, my concept of God is shaped by the people who raised me. I don't know what your, your situation was or is. If you got two parents, if you got one. I had four, so it was, it was fun. Right, the equation got broken up. I got like 25% from each parent as God. So you had to pick God on a good day because he had multiple personalities. and It was all jacked up. I've since matured. I have a better concept of God. But it was rough at the start. It was rough. A child's concept of God comes from their parents. So dad, dads, on Father's Day, a little quick reminder, you carry 50% of that weight. Whether you are, are there, whether you're engaged, whether you're a loving, caring, awesome dad, it matters. Because if you're not there, you're not engaged. What's left, the, the kid is left with 50% of a good impression of God. That's if the mom's doing everything perfect. And, and we put a lot of pressure on moms. She's probably not doing it perfect. She's probably doing a bang-up job with or without you. But guys, fathers, we've got to hold ourselves accountable. 
we carry half that weight of impressing on our children, on, on the future, who and what God is. No pressure. Just throwing out there. So as I, as I process through this some more, I try to figure out, well, my concept of God came from my parents. So my children's concept of God is going to come from me parenting them. So what, what they do when they fail, how they respond when they fail or others fail them, that's going to come from the concept of God that I've helped create in them. That's a lot of pressure on me and on my wife for our kids. So then I went scrambling, like, I've got to, I've got to figure this out because there's, there's a shortage of good dads out there. There's a shortage of good role models. And the problem is, I think, that there's no handbook that comes with a kid. Not like you're in the delivery room, and she delivers a baby, and then a book follows. That would be terrible. Books have corners. What we're left with is trying to piece together an idea, a model of, of parenting, a model of fatherhood from our experiences, from our notions we got from our parents. We, we piece together the stuff that our, our family has passed on down to us. And that, that reminds me of Pete Scazzaro and the emotionally healthy respo- uh, responsibility, emotionally healthy relationships. He tells us that Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. Our family, uh, how, how we've been raised, and generationally, it's, it's, it's letting itself become evident in our children's notion of God. So then I thought, well, I'm a spiritual man most days. I'm going to go, I'm going to look in the Bible, right? Where better to find godly models of a father than in the Bible? Don't do that. There are some jacked up dudes in the Bible, right? I would, I would go into how jacked up they are, but that's not safe for work. And we, we, we just hand these Bibles out to people. There's no, like, warning, no explicit nothing. Like, we got to rethink this, guys. We're just putting it out there. So I'm like, God, what do I do? Like, there's all these messed up dads in the Bible with their messed up kids becoming messed up dads, and it just kind of keeps going. How am I supposed to find, like, a good model of, of fatherhood outside of just trying to piece it together from my experience? And then the Holy Spirit brings to mind this, this verse. And it's something that Jesus says in in John 14, which is where we're going to go here in a bit. I was thinking through that verse, and I was like, okay. So I had to reverse engineer the verse, and to get myself there, I realized that that Jesus, Jesus changed something major when he came on the scene. When he shows up on the ministry scene, he does something that nobody else has been doing. He starts calling God Father. I say, nobody else has been doing this. Nobody else does this a lot. Because in the Old Testament, God is only directly referred to as Father 15 times. Jesus, in the Gospels alone, calls God Father over 165 times. And as as you can see by the chart, 165 is more than 15. (laughs) This is the hard-hitting theology we'd like to bring to you on a Sunday morning. Hundred and sixty five times. He he made it a central, like repeating theme of his message. It's something that, that came out every time Jesus spoke. God is Father. And this is not a notion that had taken root in, in Jewish thinking before this. Lord, yes, sovereign, definitely, but Father, it didn't 
didn't have the same grasping ability until Jesus reiterated it and pounded it into the minds of his listeners. It was near revolutionary for him to, to repeat this throughout his, his whole ministry to convey the father aspect of God. So why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus make the idea of God as father so pivotal to his message? Because we need it. We, we need a healthy, perfect role model for, for fathers, parents, because that's what we're going to pass on to our kids, this concept of God, and that's going to influence how they respond to the world and how they respond to failure in themselves and in others. So in John 14, Jesus is in the middle of a, a five-chapter teaching. It's his, uh, basically his last words. He's about to be arrested, and he knows it. So he's making his final words count, and he turns it into this five-chapter teaching. And in the middle of that, we're in John 14. Jesus is saying, i got to go. My time is up. Things are about to go down, and I'm going. You know where I'm going. You, now, you know how I'm going there. And Thomas is like, Jesus, we don't know how you're getting there. How are we supposed to know how you're getting there? And he's, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, Thomas, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, Philip keys in on the seen thing. Like, that stands out to him. And I think what it does in Philip, as, as, a, as a good young Jewish disciple, is it calls to mind notions of Moses. Because Moses wanted to see the glory of God. He even asked God for it. And God's like, this would obliterate you from existence. No. So Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And it sounds like it's just a, it's a beautiful question, right? He's hitting like the, the core of the human conundrum. Like, I want to know and experience God. Oh, Philip, your, your tender little heart, Phil. So then Jesus responds to him, have I been with you so long and still you don't know me, Phil? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. While we could dwell on my innate gifting to read sass into any kind of text conversation ever, we're going to move on and, and look a little bit deeper at this. First, Philip. Philip, when he asks this question, we see a distinct cognitive shift. He says, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Show us the Father. Philip has caught this idea of Father, of God as Father. Like that idea has started taking root in him, and he's, he's there. He's like, yes, that is who God is. Show us him. And so Philip gets it, but he doesn't get it. Most importantly in this passage, Jesus equates his actions and message with the heart of the Father. Cool. Jesus equates his actions and message with the heart of the Father. In his message, he represented God as the forgiving and self-effacing Father of the prodigal Son, running out to meet and embrace the Son who messed up and turned his back on the Father. He he conveys that, that, that God is a generous giver of good gifts. He says, you fathers, 
when your sons ask you for bread. You don't give them rocks. And you guys are wicked. How much more is a good heavenly father going to give good gifts to his children when they ask for it? You see light bulbs go off and all the dads, yeah, I wouldn't give them rocks. Except that one time. In his actions, everything Jesus said and did originated from the Father. Every act of compassion, every life changed, every leper healed, every, every bond broken, every freeing moment came through Jesus from the Father. Every word of hope, every message of grace came from God. When Jesus said, I came that you would have life and have it more abundantly, he was sharing the very heart and mission of the Father with us. Jesus effectively reestablishes in us a right God concept and a healthy father image simultaneously. So now that we're equipped with, with this right God image and God concept, how do we then go from how we think about God to how we respond when we fail? How does God respond when we fail? So we go back, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he, how he responds when people fail, shows us the heart of the Father. So how did Jesus handle failure? I don't know what you're asking yourself. You're like, I don't think you can go anywhere with this, Josh, because Jesus didn't fail. Jesus was perfect. Makes him a little unrelatable. But Jesus was surrounded by a bunch of humans. And humans being humans, they failed a lot. So we got tons of material. Uh, to start with, we go back a few verses. It hits on an area we talked about last time I was up here. Jesus was betrayed, not just by Judas, but by, by everybody and by, and by Peter. So a few verses back, Jesus is explaining to Peter that this is going to happen, warning him, hey, man, you're going to deny me three times, to deny you even know me. Your, your plane's coming down, man. It's going to crash, come right out of the sky. And it does. Uh, Jesus is arrested. He's, he's dragged in front of the religious court for an illegal court proceeding with trumped-up charges, and then he's publicly executed. But while he's in there, Peter is out, out in the courtyard trying his darndest to explain that he doesn't know Jesus. Like, I've never met Jesus. I don't, I don't know Jesus. I mean, I, I knew a Jesus. Like, he used to deliver milk to my mom's house. Does this Jesus deliver milk? Does he, does he even know milk? I, I, don't, I don't know this Jesus. So Jesus, what he said, came to pass. And he goes on to die the prophesied death that would remove our, our sin, our shame, our reproach. Takes all that away. Even though Peter's plane is just done. And then he raises from himself from the dead three days later, like he said he would. And he goes out and he meets the disciples. Where are the disciples? Where do men go when we're all like emotional and don't know what to do with ourselves? Solitude. They went out fishing. They're out on a boat, on a lake, getting fish, probably not talking at all because that's what we do. And then Jesus is on the shore. Like, there's Jesus. And they rush over to meet him. They get to the shore and Jesus has got like breakfast prepared for him. He's like, died for your sins and made breakfast. Messiah of the year. <laughs> and, and Jesus calls Peter aside and says, come walk with me. And they go for a stroll, and, and Peter, Peter's paying close attention to that plane that, that crashed. Like, this is it. I read myself into this picture of, of Peter, and like, I know how I would feel. I would be dejected. 
I would think this is where Jesus is going to just bring the hammer down, start crushing souls. Instead, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? I still got a job for you. Peter, do you love me? I still have a purpose for your life. Peter, do you, do you love me? Nothing you've ever done could diminish my love for you. There's another point in, in, in Jesus' ministry. It's in John chapter 8, where Jesus is minding his own business, and somebody brings failure to him. A bunch of religious leaders that grab this woman and drag her out in public in front of Jesus and throw her down there. And it's like, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. That sentence is full of all kinds of stuff. First of all, this is when we're in clothes. Because if you're caught in the act of adultery, you don't have a lot of time to like grab your stuff. So she may be wearing a bed sheet. Second of all, where's the dude? Because it takes two. I know this is a patriarchal society back then, maybe even now, but men have to be held accountable too. So they put this woman down in, in front of Jesus, and like the law of Moses says we should throw stones at her until she dies. Just big, heavy rocks because she's a sinner. And Jesus looks at the situation, plays around in the dirt a lot because this is ridiculous. He looks up at them and says, okay, she's a sinner, so are all y'all. And then they just bail. Because it's real easy to sit there and point fingers at somebody else and judge them and condemn them because they messed up. But as soon as it gets pointed back at you, it does not feel good. And it is time to relocate. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? And through, through sobs and a ragged voice, she says, there's, there's no one. Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Now go, sin no more. That's it. No, no bringing a hammer down, no soul crushing, nothing. Go and sin no more. He even embraces Peter back into the fold. Peter doesn't, you don't have to start over. We'll pick up right where you left off. With tender grace, Jesus represents the heart of the Father lifting up his children from their mistakes and their shortcomings. The Apostle Paul summarizes this notion of God, this, uh, this idea of who and what God is, beautifully in what I think is the most liberating verse in the Bible. And that's Romans 8.1, where he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those of you who don't speak Christianese, in Christ means you're united with him by, by faith, by believing Jesus is who he says he is and living your life his way. You're united with Christ. So therefore, there is there now no condemnation for you. There's nothing. You're Peter. You're the woman caught in adultery. And the interesting thing about the woman caught in the act of adultery is, like, 
she wasn't even in Christ. She wasn't united to him by, by faith. She didn't have a chance to be. Like, the, there wasn't a Sunday service where somebody told her to like, close her eyes, bow her head, and raise a hand. She, she didn't have time. She just got drug out in the middle of her indiscretion and called out for it. And Jesus still did not condemn her. Instead, he, he lavished grace on her. And it's a picture of our Father's heart. Saying, you know what, it's, it's just a paper airplane. And then God, as a, as a loving Father, just beckons to his children, why not try again? Let's make another one. Let's make a better one. Let's try again. And we're reminded by our Father that, that we didn't learn to walk by walking. We learned to walk by falling. And failure is part of the equation. So don't take failures too seriously. It'll eat you alive. This is where a reasonable person steps in and says, okay, Josh, it's a neat illustration, but life is a little more complicated than a paper airplane. Uh, All of our attempts at efforts as humanity go a little bit further than that. And this is where I'd say you're probably wrong. I tend to side with with the C.S. Lewis philosophy that says we're all wrong about everything. And that's the great joke. It's all going to burn up in the end anyway. The parts that that remain are the parts that matter, and the parts that matter are pretty much the responsibility of the Holy Spirit and Jesus anyway. You may fold a more complicated paper airplane than I do. Yours might be a flying O. This might be a cool manta ray thing. Mine might be basic, whatever. Your, your crashes may have wider ramifications. When your plane goes down, it may hurt some people. It may leave some scars. You may have to make some things right. Make them right. Absolutely. Deal with the ramifications. Don't beat yourself up. God doesn't. At the end of the day, it's still a paper airplane. It's going to fall out of the sky at some point this week, next week, two years from now. One day won't be good enough. One day you're going to fall short. I know I will. How are we going to respond? How, how we respond to failure in ourselves and in others. This is the flip side of the equation. So what we think about God tells us, indicates for us, and influences how we're going to respond to failure in ourselves and others. But then how we respond to failure tells the world what we think about God. The real question is not how do we build a better plane. The real question is what do we do when it crashes? What do we do when we fail? Shame, hurt, Anger, self-condemnation, guilt, they're very common feelings associated with our failures, the failures of others. The prospect of failure, especially when associated with these feelings, can be paralyzing. So to the point we stop trying. Like nothing I build matters or lasts. It all just comes crashing down over and over again. I'm done. We give up. And stop putting in any effort. I want to encourage us. One, don't give up. Again, God's beckoning you. 
Try again. Try again. I want us to walk out of here today and feel the freedom that comes with knowing that God doesn't condemn us. Freedom comes with letting that go. It's a paper airplane. Know that God doesn't condemn you. And for us to condemn ourselves is then to put ourselves in the place of God. And we make terrible gods. It's, it's like say, God saying, hey, I love you. You failed. It, it didn't work. But that's okay. Here's grace for that failure. My love isn't diminished for you just because of your mistake, your shortcoming. It's part of the equation. And then we, on the other side of that, go, no. No, God. I know what I deserve. I know what I've done. And I don't get to get off scot-free. So I'm going to sit in this for a while. And then we put ourselves in his place. If he doesn't condemn us, but we do, we've made ourselves gods and judges. There's freedom that comes when we're not condemning ourselves. Jesus came among, among other things to show us the heart of the Father and to set us free. May we now live in that freedom. May we walk out what that looks like in our lives. May we celebrate the tender kindness of our Father. Other, other side of that is in not condemning us. We're not to condemn other people. We can't be the ones condemning people, especially those who don't think like us. Because then we become gods again, and that's still not cool. We're still terrible gods. And of course they don't think like you do. Of course they don't make a paper airplane the same way you make a paper airplane. They have a different concept of God than you do. And that concept of God influences everything about them. We can't fix other people's idea of who God is by treating them in a way that God would not. We cannot fix people's idea of who God is by treating them in a way that God would not. We can't condemn them. We can't judge them harshly because they think differently than we do. All we can do is what Jesus did, is model it, is live it out, is be grace. And this is where I want to invite us into this uh, partnership. We can join Jesus in the ministry of removing shame. Take on the mantle of removing shame. Fathers, let's not add to or or heap on shame for our children. Parents, let's be conduits of grace for our kids. Let's follow the roadmap of the Father's heart towards grace for our children and grace for others. You may not be a father, but you've got people in your life who need this. They need it as much as you do, as much as I do. You too have a ministry of freedom to share with those around you, a ministry that says, I don't judge you. How can I judge you? God doesn't condemn me. I can't condemn you. And God loves you, and so will I. In spite of shortcomings, 
Maybe help other people not to take their paper planes so seriously. Enjoy the freedom. Just, just throw your plane. <laughs> throw it with some childlike faith. Knowing the Father is full of grace for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that, that you've never stopped loving us. And nothing that we can do or have done has diminished your love for us. You are so kind. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance, not your judgment, not your condemnation, because you don't do that. You tell us that you don't condemn us, and you say, just go. Sin no more. Try again. Make another paper plane. Failure is part of the equation. So Lord, may we walk out of here today with with a right notion of who you are based on your word and based on the living example of Jesus so that we can have a a better concept of you and how how we think about you is going to determine who we are. How we think about you determines our being, and from our being is going to flow out what we do and do not do, that we do not condemn others, but we do share grace. Help us to have grace for ourselves today, Lord as well as grace for others. Because the world needs it. So Lord, we trust you with our lives, with our day, with our hearts, Lord, and we celebrate fathers, and, and, and as fathers, we, we rise up to the occasion, rise up to the challenge to be better because we know you better. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, I, I don't know where you're at today, what you're wrestling with, struggling with, processing even, and we've got some great people up here who want to pray with you through that, maybe be wise counsel for you. If you've got something that, that you need to pray through, we'll get counsel on, I, I encourage you to come up here and, and engage with our prayer team. If not, you guys are dismissed. Have a great Father's Day. We love you. We'll see you next week or tonight. So